Good morning. How are we doing this morning? So good to see you. I think my mic is on. Great to see you. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1. We're finishing up Titus, the first chapter in our series, The Entrusted Follower. We specifically are calling this The Entrusted Follower, not The Entrusted Church. It applies to the church, but we don't want you to personally disconnect from this letter. Paul is writing to Titus, and it's personal. When you think of the church, oftentimes what we do is we default to a building or programs or sometimes the pastor or senior leadership, but this is about you as individuals being entrusted with God's word. So Titus chapter one, and I also want you, we're going to be flying. I've got a ton to open up to this morning, and so... Um, Get ready. Grab your Bibles also and mark Psalm 19. This is where we're going to end the morning, Psalm chapter 19. And so you will be ready. We've said the last few weeks, Paul, the apostle, is writing to Timothy to direct the church in Crete. It's this island known for a bunch of little cities and there's churches all over the place that Paul has planted and he's directed Titus on how he's supposed to lead the church. There are several key themes. Leadership is a key for the infrastructure of a church. We've said that weak leaders make weak churches and Paul is directing Titus and entrusting him on how to lead the body of Christ on the island of Crete. I want you to remember that Titus was born a Greek. And probably through Paul's ministry, he was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being a Greek, he was probably raised with the philosophy of the Greeks. Greek philosophy and thought was really built on finding telos, the aim and purpose of life. You pursue this because you're driven to find the meaning of life. To be whole or complete. The, the Greeks and the way they thought was to pursue purpose. We, 2,000 years later, are no different, right? I mean, we want to find peace in our souls. We get up in the morning and everything we do is, is driven to find peace from within, not just on the outside. We like comfort on the outside and there's nothing wrong with that. But our decisions and our thoughts and the things that we do are driven to find this inner peace. We want, just like the Greeks, to find wisdom and understanding. We want to know what real lasting joy is, right? I, I think you would agree. Joy that can never be taken away discernment, which is more than just knowledge. It's knowledge in practice to be able to understand and then act on it. We're driven just like probably Titus was raised for authenticity. We want this as individual human beings. We are drawn to people who are authentic and real I don't think, A, it's normal or natural for somebody to go, you know, I just, I really don't want peace in my soul. I just want to constantly be afflicted on the inside. And I'm good if I don't have wisdom. I, I mean, like, I just like to be an idiot. There's something wrong with somebody if, if that's their pursuit in life. Who wants joy? That's the dumbest idea. I just want to be bitter and angry. I just want to be salty all the time because that just attracts more people. Nobody thinks that. It's natural for us. But here's the thing. 
We want all these things, authenticity and right living. But just like the Greeks, all have sinned. And we all pursue these things in a way that makes sense or that understands in our individual lives, but we never seem to find the purpose that satisfies, that brings wisdom and understanding. You see, the Greeks, they had a word for this. They coined a word for this purpose in life. The apostle John, in his gospel, John, if you've never read that book, you should. That should be the first book you read. And at the beginning, the apostle John rips off this Greek word. He steals it. He says these words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. This, this word that he ripped off is the word word. It means logos. The Greeks coined this word logos as the order in the universe And their pursuit was to find that order that brought joy and satisfaction and discernment and wisdom and understanding. And John rips it off. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God. And with God. He was God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. In him was life. And in this life was the light of all mankind. And the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Where is reason and order, peace in your soul, understanding, joy, discernment, authenticity, and right living found? Logos, the word of God. Jesus becoming flesh and dwelling among us. This statement written about 80 or 90 AD after Christ by an eyewitness, John, who witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. He wrote these words and they had to have been a thunderbolt in the world of the ancient Greeks and philosophers. You see, John was proclaiming something profound. That the world is not just the product of blind, random pursuits. He's saying that the Bible teaches that the meaning of life, listen, brothers and sisters, listen to this, that the meaning of life is not some principle or target or some abstract, rational structure that we're all pursuing. That's not where the meaning of life is. The meaning of life is not a target. It's a person. It's an individual, a human being who walked on the earth. It is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The Bible, Logos, is the standard of truth. This is what he's saying. That truth cannot be found outside of God himself. If you don't get this, if you don't allow the spirit of God to open your eyes to his word, you will pursue aimlessly and never find what you're searching for, what you were created to find. It is only through Jesus Any divergence from God's word is thoughtless and careless. I know those are strong words. Any divergence, any form of living, no matter how good it sounds, philosophically, philosophically, how eloquent, how much it makes sense or seems right, if it is not rooted in the Bible, is careless and reckless. And the old Puritan writers, we don't have anybody writing like they did today. It's kind of sad. They called it a moral issue. To not 
pursue God's word. It was beyond just careless. Several years ago, I was at a uh, flea market in Santa Cruz. And went up to a table, and there were these old books. This book was sitting on it. Like, ooh, with a bunch of others. So I asked the guy at the table, tell me about this book. Oh, it's the Bible. Yeah, I know. How much is it? Where'd you get it? Tell me about it. He goes, I don't know anything about it. I just found it in a box, the back of an empty warehouse that I was taking over. Nothing about it? How much is it? He sold me this for five dollars. Five bucks. Knew nothing about it. Let me tell you about it. Tell you about this Bible. Printed in 1852. Man, love it. I got a lot of old Bibles. I got old books. I I love this kind of thing. I take it home and and I show it to Heidi, and she's like, wow, okay, yeah, that's really cool. But, but this was actually a, in 1852 to the schoolmaster teacher in, in the public elementary school in Salmon Falls. Can you believe it? The school kids had one of them, or a parent, handwrite a letter to the teacher, thanking the teacher for that year of school teaching, reminding the teacher that in this book is found the only way of salvation. Every student signed that letter, and every student cut a little clip of their hair and pasted it on the letter written to the schoolmaster. The guy that sold me the book did not know that. Do you want to know how I knew it? I didn't make it up, even though it sounds like a good story. I brought it home, and I set it down, and I was looking at it. You don't want to open it. The back cover's falling apart. This is the way a Bible is supposed to look, right? And I noticed midway through there was a crease in, and I was like, oh, what's going on here? And the pages you could see are very old, but in the middle was something that didn't look right. It was some paper that didn't match the rest of the paper. I have it in the front now. So I reached in and found this handwritten letter. Three pages. All the kids in the elementary school, their names. And then on the last page, the last couple of pages, there were lockets of hair. There were only three left in the letter. What a treasure, right? Without the letter, the handwritten letter, I would have never known anything about the history of this Bible. I'm going to set it down here before I drop it and it falls apart. That book, the Bible, written by actual people, historical accounts of actual events has withstood the test of time. This isn't some made-up thing. The authority of God's word has withstood accusation after accusation after accusation. And today... In this day and age, it is getting harder and harder, but it is not new to stand on the authority of Scripture and what it teaches in a culture that does not want truth, that does not want to define truth. Our culture wants to define a standard of truth based on talent or intelligence. Those are great qualities for a leader. But the truth of God's word is the measure on which we define followers of Jesus and leaders in the church and truth and obedience and what's right and what's wrong. Apart from scripture, we will all define it in our own minds, with our own preferences, with our own desires, 
and our own likes or dislikes. Standing on the realm of truth or the truth of scripture is definitely not a playground. It is a battleground, said one commentary on this section of the letter written to Titus. Paul is reminding Titus, God's word is the standard of truth. And you have to be on guard because Satan is a master deception artist. And to afflict the church, he masterfully shrouds lies, his doctrine of lies, with the truth, robes of truth. He seduces men and women And any of us are susceptible. I am susceptible to this. You don't take my word for it. You listen to what I say. My job is to open scripture. Satan wants to deceive. And so Paul is getting ready to reveal some false teachers, false leaders, and some deception in the church on the island of Crete. And he's going to give us three clues on how you identify false teachers. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to roll through Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And remember, we're going to land on Psalm 19. Three clues to discerning false teachers in the church. First, he says their teaching is unbiblical. You won't know if their teaching is unbiblical if you, me, we are not reading the Bible. I'll say a bold statement. You really can't be a follower of Jesus if you're not reading the Bible. If you're not reading about exactly what Jesus said and did. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Their teaching does not align with the Bible, for there are many, he says, who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcised party. I'll answer that in just a second. But the first word he uses is insubordinate. They're not aligning with the authority of Scripture. They're insubordinate. This word is actually better rendered unaccountable men. They're not accountable to anybody. One commentary puts it this way. These individuals, or leaders, on Crete rejected those in authority over them. They refused to submit to them or have any oversight or remain accountable to anyone. This particular brand of false teacher establishes himself or herself as a religious authority, and listen, typically through personal gifts or talents and abilities that woo people. These type of individuals, the commentator goes on, look at themselves as a source of spiritual truth. And they pass their speculations as revelation from God and clearly contradict Scripture. Side note beware, church family, including myself, beware of any leader that stands up. To speak truth that calls themselves a pastor, a bishop, a prophet, an apostle, God's anointed, and yet has no one empowered to strip them of their title should they fail to honor God in their behavior and beliefs. As you know, I am accountable for what I preach to the board, the elder board here, and to the denomination we belong to. And I am fallible. Paul is telling Titus, hey, 
there's a group of people that aren't accountable to anybody. Titus knew this from his mentor, Paul, because even Paul submitted himself to the elders at Jerusalem. We see that in Galatians chapter two. And you know what else Paul did? He also held the elders accountable to sound doctrine. There was a give and take relationship here and they held each other accountable. You cannot have unaccountable leaders in the church because what happens is they become empty talkers and that's the second term Paul uses to help Titus see that their teaching is unbiblical. They're empty talkers. This comes from a compound word, meaning empty, vain, futile. It references back to Solomon's words in the Old Testament, the same verbiage when he called worldly philosophies vanity and futility and striving after the wind like a boxer beating the air and losing. Those of you who do insanity or I do too, it's okay. It's not what this is talking about. Empty talkers. Paul knew this well and Titus understood it because he experienced it in other churches. As a matter of fact, Paul in 2 Timothy said, there's a group of men who've stopped teaching the truth and quote, their talk will spread like gangrene. Gangrene is the Greek word for co. Vid 19, sorry, I couldn't resist. It spreads like gangrene, poisoning those who hang, 2 Timothy 2, on every word. One of my mentors a long time ago, a pillar of the faith, said to me, you can always spot those who don't teach the Bible or truth by the way they say absolutely nothing beautifully. Empty Talkers speak smooth, they're captivating, they're persuasive, but they have little or nothing on which they base their teaching. Or more specifically, it is not founded and based on the whole of Scripture. In our day and age, oftentimes empty talkers base their teaching on modern philosophy, popular books, or personal preference or insight. He calls these people deceivers. This is a curious word that Paul uses for Titus. Deceivers. It's commonly, it's a common term. The, the regular pronunciation, apatai, means deceiver. And this word, apatai, would be fine just by itself, but Paul changes it and makes it a compound word, adding to it friend. Friend apatis, meaning mind deceiver. It's not just deception, it's deceiving the way people think and believe based on philosophy with no measure. See, the Bible is our standard. It is the measure. If you and I were going to build something, we would take out a measuring tape and we would measure things precisely so that it looked right. But if I was building something with Steve Johnson, who is a builder, and I said, I don't want to use a tape measure. I prefer my hand. It's two hands from the side. Well, he's going to say, well, how much is that? Well, whatever you want. And it's not going to look right. And if I actually was a smooth talker and deceived Steve to believe that that actually was true and that could work, 
What would happen? Sharon's thinking, give it a shot, Andy. Not going to happen. Mind deceivers. Strong words. Insubordinate, empty talker, mind deceivers. Mostly from the circumcised party. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but Paul is referencing Christian Jews who insisted, they're Jews that began to follow Christ, and now they're insisting that in order to really follow Christ, you have to go through the doorway of Judaism. This particular heresy had been struck down by Paul and the elders in Jerusalem, but somehow it stubbornly refused to die on the island of Crete. This heresy or this group of people believed you had to follow all the Jewish laws to then really follow Jesus. You had to earn your way still through the Jewish way. Jesus annihilated that. He initiated grace that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we kind of have a picture here based on their teaching of what happens in a Christian community when there's no accountability, when there's no rule or standard of teaching. We see a picture here. That the church becomes weak when this happens. That the church is not created to be isolated and separated and alone with no standard or godly account from God's word and from people who are held in account to lead the church. This is why we must continue to gather and build community, whether in person or online. There must be community. Because otherwise the enemy in our isolation will creep in and lead us astray, especially in the world we are living in today. So their teaching wasn't biblical, but their motives were also evil. Their motives were off from God's word and God's way. They must be silent, verse 11, since they're upsetting those upsetting the whole family by teaching for shameful gain what ought not be taught or what they should not teach. Shameful gain. It's the same connotation or understanding of drug money. Shameful gain. The mere possession of wealth obtained through false teaching brings shame upon the person holding it. When you scratch below the surface of most false teachers, they do what they do for money. They try to hide their motives, but they can't for long. Because what happens is their lack of moral compass and checkpoints with scripture begin to be revealed by their actions. And Paul is saying their motives are unbiblical, so they must be silenced. This sounds harsh, doesn't it? Especially in our culture and our world today, this sounds really harsh. Well, guess what? It's worse than it sounds. Because when you study this, they must be silenced. It literally means to muzzle, usually stuffing something in a person's mouth. Oh, that's not kind. But Paul's giving this as a mandate to Titus. And he's doing it in the presence of the congregation. Because this is serious. Souls are at stake. He's basically saying, you have to shut them up. 
You have to confront false teachers without delay or they will tear the church apart. And it all stems from their motives, selfish gain. And out of their motives, we see their behavior. The third clue, their behavior is disgraceful. Paul has a little bit of a sense of humor, I think, because he kind of, in a twist of irony, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, he draws a testimony of a pagan prophet who stated that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's kind of giving an inside joke, so to speak. The prophet himself was a Cretan. This Cretan said it. It's referenced in several other historical books. He's a Cretan, and he's ripping on Cretans. The irony of that. And in a double twist of irony, Paul declares the false prophet's oracle to be true. He states it as truth because Titus and those on the island of Crete probably knew that this prophet had said that. So he's saying, you know it's true. Verse 13, this statement is true. Therefore, he continues, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Verse uh, 13 is really important to understand as a follower of Jesus Christ as a person who is supposed to stand on the truth of Scripture as absolute truth and not waver. Verse 13, Paul reveals his motive in rebuking. It's so important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to understand our motive because a lot of Christians, especially in the political world, don't understand verse 13. Paul intended his letter to be read in the presence of Cretan believers. He used a cultural inside joke. He calls them to rebuke sharply. The word rebuke is the same word we looked at last week, meaning to refute in verse 1-9. And this is the role and the responsibility of an elder. The rebuke must be prompt and forthright which undoubtedly feels harsh to the false teacher. It is not, based on verse 13, intended to insult the person or to humiliate the false teacher. That is not the intent. Paul did not call Titus to crush the enemies of truth with withering verbal assaults, but to redeem them so that, he says, they may be sound in faith. That is the Christian message. That is the heartbeat of the gospel. To understand grace means that you and I don't deserve grace, that we have sinned just like the false teachers, but we have accepted Christ's forgiveness. The Christian message always has restoration as its motivation. This is the biblical mark of a healthy church to help restore the fallen and Strengthen the weak. We say it with a phrase, helping people find and follow Jesus. The goal is to draw them back to faith so that, verse 14, they don't devote themselves to Jewish myths and to commands of people who turn away from the truth Jewish mythology and rigorous rules were plaguing this church. 
And this mythology and these rules were seeping in and making people feel like they had to do something to be godly. You're godly because of what God has done. You're godly because you believe in what he's done, and it's by his grace he transforms you into obedience. Grace is not a license to continue in sin. That is a false teaching. Grace is irresistible. Grace alone saves you. But as the old Puritans would say, grace, true grace, is never alone. Works don't save you. Grace saves you. It is a gift from God, Ephesians 2. It's not of your works so that no one could say, look what I did. It is about what he did. And when you accept that grace, you're transformed. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their conscience are defiled. These false teachers were promoting a life of strict abstinence. Asceticism is what it's called. The Greek philosophers taught that the universe consisted of two vastly different realms. The realm of pure idea or thought, the spiritual realm, and then the material realm where we live. And in Greek teaching or philosophy, if you wanted to get into the spiritual realm, you had to completely eliminate your attachments to the physical realm. And Jesus came along and said, this is nonsense. Jesus, God, as we read in John chapter 1, verse 1, created all things, both material and immaterial, and he called them all good. Sin nature entered the world and wrecked it and divided it. And Paul affirms that we should receive and enjoy with gratitude all things that come by grace. The Christian concept sees material things as neither good nor evil by themselves. Material things, though, can be used for either good or evil. That's why Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. When believing people conduct themselves according to God's will, even the most detestable things can become a means of good in their hands. You see, God created these things as good, and man pollutes them. Food. We're supposed to enjoy it's a good thing, but we've turned it into gluttony. Alcohol, sex, all these things God created for good. And when God transforms us, the absolute truth of his word begins to dictate and define how we live. And then in verse 16, he drops the final hammer. And he returns to a major theme in the whole book. They profess, verse 16, to know God. But they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul returns to a central theme, genuine belief in the truth of God. Genuine belief that is held up and accountable to God's word produces a lifestyle of godly behavior. A person can cover up their detestable, disobedient characteristics and look like they're doing good, but their heart, their motives are not in line with the Spirit of God, fueled by the Word of God. Many of you have heard me talk about an older gentleman I met years ago named Jay, who was born and raised in modern-day Nineveh up in northern Iraq. I was at Barnes & Noble. I was hanging out. Sitting next to me, I see this older gentleman, and he'd ask me a few questions, just off the cuff, if I was using the chair or whatever, and 
puts a chair down and he's reading the Quran. And then it was a time when I was in seminary, so I had some commentary books out and I had my laptop open and I was studying and writing a paper and he asked me about Jesus. And he showed me these verses he had outlined. He was trying to figure out who Jesus was through reading the Quran. We started a conversation about the Bible. He'd never read a Bible. Is it true? We talked about that. Inspired, he couldn't even fathom that word. Inspired by God? Well, who's the prophet that wrote it? God did. Yahweh. We met several times. I don't know over what happened to him. Because after a couple of weeks, he stopped showing up. But one of our last conversations was talking about the book of John, the gospel of John. And I had asked him to read it. Read this book. And come back and tell me who Jesus is. Our conversation got really exciting. As he came back and said, I, wrote, I read the book of John. Jesus is God. Yes, I know. No, Andy, he's God. I know. You don't understand. Jay, tell me about Jesus. He started to. You see, the Bible is inspired. It has been under battle since the beginning of its authenticity, its efficiency, its sufficiency. Does the Bible really cover everything we need for living today? In the Bible, you find the only answer to peace in your soul, wisdom and understanding, joy, real lasting joy, discernment, authenticity, and right living. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 19, and I'm going to close by showing you what the Bible says about itself. It's so important that you see this for yourself. There's a couple of places to go, but I think Psalm 19 is so clear about how we see and understand who God is and his word. Psalm 19 gives us a general idea, starting in verse 1, of general revelation. The heaven, general revelation is common man can see God's glory and that God exists. The heavens, it says, declare the glory of God. That's General revelation, the average man goes to the ocean and goes, wow, or looks at the way the eyeball works and goes, wow, there's got to be something bigger and more intelligent out there. There must be God. And then starting in verse seven, we see special revelation about the Bible talking about itself, God talking about himself through the Bible, we see six titles for Scripture or for the Bible with six characteristics and six effects. I'm going to walk you quickly through these, but this week, on your own, read and meditate, circle and underline, and wrestle with Scripture. You see six titles, the law the testimony, the precepts, the commands, fear, and rules with six characteristics, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true, and six effects to these characteristics about the Bible, reviving the soul, wise, making wise the simple, rejoicing in the heart, enlightening the eyes, enduring forever, and righteous all together. Psalm 19, verse seven, the law of the Lord, the Bible, is perfect, reviving the soul. Law is perfect. 
you study with Greek concordances and commentaries this word perfect. Break it down and look at it. What you see is that it means perfect. It's just that simple. But not perfect in regards to the opposite of imperfect. It means complete. The Bible is complete. The the Hebrew word for complete is all-sided. It covers all aspects. Nothing can be taken away or added to the Bible. It is perfect. You don't need more or you just need it. And it's perfect. It is complete. It covers all in regards to reviving the soul. Hebrew word nefesh, the inner person. It revives, it transforms the inner person. Logos produces life and transforms on the inside. Scripture is not intended to create a superficial, external, social morality. The design of Scripture is not to fix your temporal human life on the outside. Scripture is designed to target with all its power, all its energy. It is complete and perfect. Your interbeing, your soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The testimony, this book is the divine testimony of God himself. Since God's perfect, his testimony in God's word, his own word is perfect and it brings wisdom. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked does not stand in the path of sinners and doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He should meditate on it day and night like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in all seasons. Its leaves do not wither away and whatever it does, it prospers. This testimony of God's word is sure. The precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts, this word means doctrines. These are not suggestions. The precepts found in God's word are not just, hey, you know, if you you think about it or if it fits or if you like it, if it makes sense, it's just a suggestion. No, no, the precepts are right. They're not ideas. They're not sort of, floating around truths that become reality when you decide to experience them. They're absolute truths. Some translations use the word or the phrase, the statues of the Lord. They are divine doctrines. They are absolute principles for behavior and principles for living out God's will. And we oftentimes don't like it because it's complete contradiction to our will. Maybe hard to believe, but some have said, I'm too theological. I have too much doctrine. Everything in the Bible is doctrine. Doctrine simply means truth. It's a truth that's established. It's a truth that's communicated. It's a truth that is understood when you read it. You do not want to live your life without divine precepts. The Bible says this, not me. First John, these things are written in the Bible that your joy may be full that your joy may be overflowing. Where do you get your joy? 
Joy comes from the word of God applied to your life in surrender to God's will. Let the word of Christ, Colossians 3.16, dwell in you richly. Joy in life is not from your possessions or from what you have materialistically. Man's life does not consist of abundance of things. It doesn't come from self-indulgence. Joy does not come from seeking self-gratification or self-promotion. True, lasting joy comes through the word of God, known and obeyed. The commands are pure, enlightening the eyes. The commands of the Lord are pure. The command of the Lord it speaks scripture as divine decrees or divine orders. They're authoritative. They are sovereign. They are binding. They're not optional. And you and I cannot obey them on our own. That's the point of the Old Testament and the commands. To show us that we can't earn our way to God's holiness. We need help. And so Jesus came to help us to obey these pure commands by enlightening and opening our eyes. This word pure translates clear transparent, easy to understand so that it gives clear direction. It opens our eyes, gives us direction in life. Two more, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That's weird. Fear? Fear, is a, fear of the Lord is a divine word for worship. If your mind went to a divine word for singing, you have the wrong definition, biblically, of worship. Singing is an aspect of worship. But worship is a heart that lives life, all of life, in awe and surrender and reverence. The Bible is a manual on worship. We wouldn't know how to worship God without his word. We worship in spirit and in truth. We were created to worship. You and I are incapable of not worshiping. We, from the time we were born, began to worship and have not stopped and won't stop for all eternity. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10 says. Everything in life starts with worship towards God. And what does it mean when he says, is clean? It's free from error, free from corruption. This single statement speaks that the Bible is perfect. It's a perfect manual authored by God to worship God, free from defilement, corruption, error, impurity, filthiness, and imperfection. And when we see human beings take God's word out of context and then use it out of context, we see catastrophe. We see genocide. We see sin, nature at its worst. Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tested in a furnace seven times. The word of God endures forever. God's word. You, you can't live without it. It's forever. Within it, we find life. Logos, Jesus, salvation. And then last, the rules are true. The just decrees, God's justice is true and righteous all together. Judgments, his judgments are just. 
It's like the divine bench and the divine verdicts are right, whether we like it or not. The judge of all the earth has recorded in his word his commands and his verdicts for disobedience. This is where the gospel comes into play and brings us understanding that the word Logos became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and he lived a sinless life that you and I could not and have not been able to live. You and I can't measure up. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's holiness. He's perfect and he's just. He must punish sin, but he extends grace by giving your punishment for sin and my punishment for sin to his son. Why did he do that? Why didn't he choose a different way? Well, you can put that on your list to ask him when you get there, but he's recorded it here. And you probably, when you get there, won't ask him because you will be in awe and reverence of how amazing he is. He's a perfect and holy God. He extends grace. Grace that looks like this. When justice is done, Proverbs 21, it is the joy of the righteous. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoer, the one who does not believe, does not submit does not follow Logos. But there's grace. I want you to listen to Romans 3 as Paul explains this grace and how it affects each of us who believe doesn't mean we fully understand, but we pursue God and his spirit leads us to those six effects of his word, understanding and discernment and joy that can never be taken away, not even death itself. Death will rob you of your happiness. Death of a loved one, the death of a friend. The joy of the Lord is for all eternity. Satisfaction, wisdom and discernment Romans 3, for everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's perfect and glorious standard. Yet, God, verse 24, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ. When he freed us from the penalty of our sin, Jesus takes your place. You believe that? For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right, Paul says in Romans, with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This is good news. You won't find that anywhere else. Forgiveness, peace in your soul, transformation, the life full of joy that you want. You won't find it anywhere else. This sacrifice, he goes on, shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned against him. He was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. If you don't have a Bible, would you let us know? If you're not in a reading program, if you're not filtering your mind with the Bible, the mind of God, you're missing you're missing what you're created for. God himself. And we're here to help you follow Jesus. 
and to protect you from false teaching that any one of us as leaders are susceptible to. And it's only by God's word that we can know the standard of his will and his way and who he is. I invite you to stand as we close in prayer. Father in heaven, we worship you. And as we close and we sing and we lift our hearts to you, we're grateful for your word. Your word is life. Your word reveals your will. It reveals your commands. It reveals how we find forgiveness in you, the gift of salvation. It reveals truth about eternity. I ask your spirit, Lord, to open eyes and hearts to believe and to follow. May we be a church that is not judgmental towards others, but full of hope in pointing people to the truth of your son, Jesus, in your name. Amen.